We take up the text in chapter 12, verses 29 to 42, and you may remember that in our last studies, a couple of studies, we looked at the the uh, prescription of the Passover meal, the provisions for Passover, unleavened bread, and what that was to symbolize. And it, it drove us powerfully to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, as we will celebrate tonight. But I want you to see uh, the power of God manifested in this passage in a somewhat surprising way, in the brevity of it. We've noticed and we've studied these plagues that the more brief the account, the more severe the judgment. This is the most brief account, just a few verses. And the brevity of the account of the judgment is a display of the power of God, an ironic display of the power of God. He says nothing delivers his judgment on those who rebel against him, but brings protection and provision and peace to those who obey him. It faces us, this brief account, it faces us with this this decision that every one of us must make today. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Begin reading in verse 29, Exodus chapter 12, the second book of the Bible. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, get out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out from the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they, that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, 
all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. O Lord, we ask that you would dispatch your Holy Spirit and fall on us mightily that we would see powerful things, compelling things in this copy, this text from your word. This account of your faithfulness. And may it be that we would not only choose to follow you, but we would choose to follow you joyfully in response to your grace. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and God's people said together, Amen. Nicholas Kristof is an opinion writer for the New York Times whom I love to, I like to read. I admire his writing a great deal. A number of years ago, Kristof was doing a story on human trafficking. He was in Cambodia and interviewed a, a number of young girls and women who were captive for evil purposes, we'll say. And he discovered in these interviews a couple of women who particularly said that they, if they had the opportunity to, to be free, they would, they would take it. They would, they would love to be free and they would love to return to their villages, but they thought that was impossible. Christoph had compassion for them, so he, he began negotiating with their owner. And he uh, came to a rather easy deal with the, the owner for the youngest girl. Her name was Sray Neth. $150 bought her freedom, complete with a receipt. The other woman was her mother. That negotiation wasn't so easy. The owner wasn't willing to part with her. The price went up and up until it reached over $200. And then they struck a deal. And he announced, Christoph announced to Shrenet's mother, you are free. You come with me. I'll take you back to your village. She said, not until I get my cell phone back. She had pawned her cell phone for $55 and she wanted it back. He said, what are you thinking? It's just a phone. We'll get you another phone. We've got to get out of here. The time is limited. I've bought your freedom. We've got to go back to your village. No, she ran like a teenager back into her bedroom and slammed the door and locked it and cried. The, the, the other girls in the place begged her to take up her freedom. Even the owner said, you've got to do this. Finally, Christoph said, okay, I'll buy the phone. I'll pay the, 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 the pawn price. Got the phone back. And then she said, not until I get my jewelry too. He bought the jewelry. He concluded his article this way. Will these women, like some other girls rescued from servitude, find freedom so unsettling 
that they will slink back to slavery? Will they find freedom so unsettling that they will slink back to slavery? It's a recurring phenomenon. 75% of women set free from trafficking return to their captives. So traumatized are they, so so imprinted, scarred are they by the constant message that you are nothing, you are a slave, you are worthless. It's hard for them to believe the truth. It's just too good to be true. It was the recurring history of Israel too. They had been slaves for 430 years. It was imprinted on their identity. No matter how many times God told them, you are free and your freedom is found in captivity to me. They found it difficult to live in that freedom. Some of you can identify because of the trauma you have experienced in your personal past. In your historical past, the past of your people, it's difficult to believe the truth. It's just too good to be true. It's, it's certainly true as well for every human being. Because what is natural to us, what is natural to us is our slavery to sin. To sin, death, and the devil. It's imprinted on us genetically, from our father Adam and our mother Eve, we constantly slink back to slavery, thinking that returning to sin and death and the devil is somehow more liberating. I want you to look at something that can go almost unnoticed in our text, this great transition that occurs in verse 34, this transition from captivity to slavery. Verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. It was an act, their first act of freedom, where Pharaoh and the Egyptians say, get out of here, and the Israelites do it. So the Israelites took their dough and left. It's a transition point from captivity to Pharaoh to captivity to the Lord. And the same choice faces each one of you today. No matter how long, really, you've walked with the Lord, the same choice faces you, especially faces if you've never bowed the knee to Christ. Choose you this day. Will you serve this Lord who is mighty over heaven and earth, who holds the keys of death itself, or will you continue to slink forward in your slavery. As is typical with the Lord, He provides us not only, He not only gives us the command, He gives us gracious reasons and empowerment for keeping the commands. Those promises, those promises, those, uh, those, uh, those uh, gracious 
rationales, those gracious reasons for choosing to follow the Lord today are his promises, his provisions, his protection. And let me remind you from the very beginning that we're not inserting Jesus into this text. As the New Testament in Jude verse 5, in Jude verse 5, the New Testament tells us that it was Jesus who led these people out of Egypt. So when we say you must, not, you must choose you this day whom you will serve, we say very specifically, you must choose as these Israelites and those Egyptians who followed with them, you must follow today. You must choose today to follow Jesus. And you choose to follow him, first of all, because he keeps his promises. We could say even more specifically, he keeps his prophecies. That's the point of verses 29 to 32. That, that God has fulfilled prophecy. Now, prophecy is not that, that mysterious thing that's hidden somehow in your palm or in tea leaves or in the stars. This is prophecy. This, the written word of God, is all the prophecy you need for everything that faces you in the present and in the future. This is prophecy. All fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he points to that phenomenon in verses 29 to 32 by reminding us, the readers, that this is all going just as he said it would. Remember back in chapter 11, you may look back there, in verses 1 through 10, he prophesied everything that has come about in these verses. He says in verse 4, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. What did we read? At midnight, they got up to check on their children and those who had not covered their doors with the blood of a lamb found their children and their livestock, the firstborn of them, dead. And every firstborn, verse 5, will die, even the firstborn of Pharaoh. There will be a great cry, verse 6, that will go up. We read about that too. The people will tell you, get out of the land in verse 8. And Pharaoh himself will tell you to get out. All of that was prophesied and all of that came to pass. And it's true. That's the truth of everything that God says in his word. God, God, unlike any other God, unlike any other idol, tells you up front, if you do this, if you obey, you will live. Life will go well with you. If you don't, if you rebel, life will not go well with you. The gods of the Egyptians were not like that. The gods of the Egyptians constantly kept their people unsettled. They didn't know that the gods weren't happy with them until their crops failed. And they didn't know that they had done enough to make their gods happy until their crops succeeded again. But that was never the case with God. He doesn't keep you guessing. He tells you exactly what he wants of you, what he demands of you. And if you keep it, life will go well. If you disobey it, you'll bring judgment on yourself. That terminology about idols and false gods, maybe that doesn't mean anything to you, but this will. Those are false lovers. Everything but God revealed in Jesus Christ is a false lover. 
If you're looking for love and acceptance from fashion, it will love you and leave you within a year. You're looking for uh, uh, some kind of buildup of your self-esteem from some material possession. It will rust and fall apart. You're looking for your acceptance in someone else. They're going to tell you whether you are worthy or not. They'll always let you down. Whatever other false, what false lover you follow will always disappoint will always leave you behind, will always betray you, and in the end, blame you for it. But God is a true friend. God says, I want life to go well with you. And so I'm going to give you my instructions. Let me remind you of some of those instructions. Just seven, a catalog of seven quickly. Just how God addresses things in our lives. How about marriage and sexuality? Proverbs chapter 5 verses 1 to 3, 1 to 23. Solomon sits down with his son and he says it's time we have a serious talk. And here's what's going to happen, son. If you if you cherish sex within marriage, it will be joyful and lovely and graceful, even intoxicating. But if you seek it outside of marriage, it will be regretful and shaming and bitter and scarring and entangling and dishonoring and disgusting and maybe even murderous. How about labor and laziness? Proverbs verse chapter 28. If you work, you will have plenty of bread. It doesn't say that you'll have every indulgence that you want, but you will have what you need. If you're lazy, the proverb says, you will have plenty of poverty. What about respect and rebellion? Respect for your legitimate authorities above you. They're all captured under, under an umbrella term, father and mother. Honor father and mother, the fifth commandment, repeated in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2. And your days will be long upon the earth. The first commandment with the promise. Your days, if you respect your leaders, live in submission to your leaders, life will go better with you. Some of you have lived for a while. Just think back at how your parents fulfilled, how, it, how their parents helped you fulfill and realize this promise. The things they told you not to do because they knew they would kill you. They said, don't do that. I thought my dad was so narrow-minded when he told me that I couldn't paddle my canoe behind a tugboat on the Tennessee River. It's a brilliant idea. He was so narrow-minded. Respecting him made my days a little longer on the earth. It's true of parents. It's true of authorities in your workplace. It's true of authorities in the church. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, obey your leaders that their ministry among you might be with joy and not with groaning. Because if you make it with groaning, he says, that will be of no advantage to you. God sets up authorities in the church and your elders and pastors. I don't know what he means exactly by no advantage, but I can give you some hints of it as I've seen it through the years that those who've rebelled against their spiritual authorities, and it was not advantageous. 
What about unity and disunity? If you are unified in your worship, you worship with Jesus, the Bible says, and you honor angels. If you're disunified in worship and in the church, the Bible says things like some of you will be sick, others of you may die. Or mercy toward the poor, the one who is merciful to the poor lends to the Lord. The one who doesn't lend to the Lord is one whom the Lord against whom the Lord will Hold it as sin. Keeping the Sabbath day, you will be refreshed. If you don't, you'll be exhausted. Welcoming the stranger, you welcome the stranger, you welcome Jesus, you reject the stranger. Jesus will say to you, I never knew you. Now, some of you say that's, that's very unsettling. That's, that's, some of those threats are not kind. But a gracious God knows how life goes best. And he says to you, do this and you will live. I want you to live. And here is the warning of the judgment you bring on yourself if you chose to follow self. The next reason that we should follow the Lord, choose the Lord alone, the Lord Jesus to follow, is that he makes all the provisions we need. Verses 33 to 39, what a strange thing, isn't it? If they go to, they go to the, 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 the people of Egypt and say, uh, would you give us all your jewelry and all, your, all your, your gold and your silver? And not only did the people surrender it, they did it gladly. Pharaoh tells them to go and he's obviously traumatized. Even Pharaoh is asking for a blessing. So mighty is God that he turns enemies into friends or providers anyway. Why should that surprise us? The God who owns all things, the cattle on a thousand hills, the God who is Lord over heaven and earth. It's not, a, it's not something that's only contained in this story in the Old Testament. This is repeated in the New Testament too. When the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 12, quit worrying. You're worried about what you will eat and what you will drink and what you shall put on. You're worrying about tomorrow. Quit worrying. And here's the reason you should quit worrying. Your heavenly father, little flock, knows you have need of all these things. So you have one job. You and I have one job. Seek the kingdom. Seek the kingdom. That's what it's all Jesus says. Seek the kingdom. And all these other things will be added unto you. You won't have to worry about what you're going to put on anymore than the flowers of the field do. You won't have to worry about what you eat anymore than the birds of the air do. You have one job. Seek the kingdom. You have one job, which is to ask in every situation... No matter how troubling it might be at first, you ask this question, what does the Lord want me to do? And and there's not even the requirement that you're precise in determining what it is. All he he says, I want you to seek my kingdom. Turn toward me as king. King. You turn your heart toward me as king. I'll provide the other things. 
When my daughters were playing, my twins were playing soccer in high school, they had a, a striker on their team who had, who had been recruited by D1 schools from the time she was in middle school. She was a phenom on the field. If, you ever, if they could ever get the ball to her feet, she never lost it until she either shot or assisted. I've never seen anything like it. And I often thought when I was watching her play, I thought, what would it be like as an athlete to know I will never lose? I can't lose. What would it be like? I never had that experience. And then I would think, what would it be like if I could live my life with the confidence I can't lose. It's the way Jesus wants us to live. He takes all the pressure off. You seek my kingdom. That's all you need to do. You can't lose. Nobody can threaten you. Nobody can take anything away from you. What what kind of business people would we be if we lost the fear of losing our job for choosing to do the right thing? What kind of neighbors would we be if we lost the fear of people messing up our home if we had offered them hospitality? What kind of relationships would we, would we pursue if we lost the fear of our peers rejecting us for being friends with the wrong people? Pastors who listen to me, what, what, kind, of, what kind of pastors would we be if we lost the fear of people punishing by withholding their funds or leaving? What kind of spouses would we be if we lost the fear of not having love reciprocated to us and loved freely, knowing that Jesus would love? What kind of children would we raise if we lost the fear of of supporting them in their calling, regardless of what our peers would think? We would be dangerous people. It's what Jesus calls us to. And I can show you in this text an example of those who became this, this fearless. Of course, you know, it's unsettling to these, to these Israelites who have been slaves all this time to set out on a trek to another place they didn't even know existed. And, and God very mercifully put bread in their hands and he, he put money in their pockets long before they needed it. But you notice that, that, that our text tells us, too, that along with them were those, verse 38, who went from Egypt, a mixed multitude. Now, that's a very specific phrase, which scholars translate this way, a great ethnically mixed multitude went up with them. And later we're told that there were Egyptians in the mix who by putting their faith in the Lord alone were accepted into the number and even accepted as marriage partners. This points to the fact that that the Israelites were never genetically pure. We read about later, King David had a great-grandmother who was a Moabite. And, and, And there's an ancestor in Jesus' line who were Canaanites. 
And the Bible says in, in Psalm 87 that in the kingdom of heaven there will be Egyptians and Tyrians and, and Phoenicians and Philistines. God is bringing his people together from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. His image is too great to be expressed purely in just one gender. In male and female, he created them, or in just one race. His image must be reflected throughout all the races before he can be fully glorified in heaven. And these left Egypt too. These were the ones who were free. These were the ones who had it, it were, were familiar. They, they, they were the ones who, who had their homes and, and they'd put down their roots and these were their ancestral origins. And they chose to follow the Lord trusting that he would provide for them. And they left finally and quickly in verses 40 to 42 under the protection of the Lord. Our translation seems to make the mistake that many have in in translating the 600 as 600,000. It's hard to make that many people and then some extrapolate from there that there were 2 million Israelites wandering through the desert. It's hard to make that fit with the rest of of the Bible. It's more likely that it was 600 foot soldiers. 600 units of foot soldiers. 600 elephs is the Hebrew word. 600 units of foot soldiers. We might say platoons. 600 platoons led the children of Israel out. That would translate into 7,200 or so foot soldiers and then maybe 25, 30,000 Israelites making their way to the promised land. The numbers are not so important as this. In our text twice, God uses military language to describe the children of Israel leaving Egypt. 600 units, 600 platoons of foot soldiers and all the hosts of Israel marched out of Egypt. I just want that to sink in on you a little bit. It's so great and generous is our gracious Lord that he doesn't merely rescue us out of slavery. He transforms us from victims into victors. And he says, I want you to be part of my conquering army. Someday I'm going to seat you on thrones. Now you say, I don't feel very victorious today. I don't feel very conquering. I certainly don't feel like more than a conqueror, like the New Testament calls me. But you see, the explanation is not to be found in the way you feel. It's not, this conquering is not going to be uh, accomplished by your self-discipline and your courage. It's going to be accomplished as in verse 42. Because the Lord is the one who keeps vigil over you. He's the one who fights for you behind and before. The one who fights for you and protects you while you're sleeping. The one who will preserve you from the sun by day and the moon by night. Why should you follow this master? Because he's good. He's the one who fulfills his promises and makes all provisions for you and, and protects you. For one of the birthdays of our twins, I forgot which one it was, we decided to take them whitewater rafting. 
It's one of those decisions by a parent that might undercut what I just said about parents, you know, looking after your long-term health. One of our children almost died, and then the next year, the same course where we were whitewater rafting was stricken with a flesh-eating disease. They shut it down. Anyway, we survived. And uh, that's a story for another time. But we started on this whitewater. We started on this whitewater rafting experience, and and uh, I we had divided up in various boats, and we were with our guide. And our guide was a very slight, very skinny, bespectacled English teacher. I like English teachers. I like English majors. I was an English major, but I was hoping for like an outdoor survival guide, somebody like that, because I could imagine my English major friends just finding it somehow romantic by dying engulfed by the waves of love or something like that. So I, I didn't mean to judge her, but I did go looking for another guide. I said, is there anybody here that had wilderness medicine or something like that? And there was no other guide. She was my guide. She gave her instructions, and is typical. I wasn't listening carefully to the instructions. Thank goodness one of our children was. It's what saved her life. She gave us our instructions. Then she gave us our equipment. The paddle, showed us how to use it, helmet, the um, life vest. And then the English teacher got in our boat and started leading us. And you, we, we were going through the course and... I'd read about these hydraulics and things like that that could kill you. And I wondered, how in the world is she going to save us? Now, she quickly whipped us in shape. Three strokes to the right, two strokes on the left. Stop. When I say stop, she was like a drill sergeant. And then we came up to a certain place and she said, we're going hard to the left. We're avoiding that side because there's a hydraulic there. You follow my lead. She took us through it. My confidence was built. And then she said, do you know how I knew where to go? And she pointed to her helmet, which at one time had been a sporty wood grain looking helmet, I could tell, but it looked now like it had gone through a wood chipper. And she said, "Uh, here's how I know where to go. Because when I first went down this course, I went in a kayak, I got caught in that hydraulic. It flipped me and slammed me to the boulder beneath. It could have killed me without a helmet. So I make sure my people never go that way. They only go this way. I love the English teacher then. I believed her. She had the scars to prove it. Your master, the Lord Jesus, doesn't stand here and say like this with folded arms. You better choose you this day to follow the right one or else. Instead, he holds out scarred hands. And he says, I intentionally took the wrong way in your place. and took the scars that I might lead you in the right direction. Choose you this day, the Lord Jesus. Serve him with gladness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your being a faithful shepherd. 
And a faithful friend spreads a table before us in the presence even of our enemies. Oh, Lord, cause your goodness and mercy to follow us all the days of our lives until we finally dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And for that one who has not yet bowed the knee to Christ, may this be the day of their salvation. For that one, a believer, who is refusing to bow the knee in that one area of his or her life, oh, Lord, make them a captive that they may finally be free. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.